For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. Surely that is the most famous verse in Scripture, John 3.16, the one that if anybody is going to hold up a sign with a Scripture verse at stadiums in front of the television cameras, it's going to be that one. There was somebody who was doing that for a few years and even got songs written about him. And it's a great verse to choose because it's hard to pick any other verse that in such a short amount of words, one sentence, packs in so much of the heart of the Christian message. And in seeing that we had this gospel reading, I might almost think, wait, are we at the end of Lent already? I mean, it seems like we're right there looking at Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But let's take a look at where we have been because these readings in year B of this three-year lectionary cycle for Lent have been leading us on a journey, except we sort of have to look at them across the weeks to make sure that we recognize that journey. They've been taking us through salvation history. We've been making leaps of several centuries every Sunday. And we're looking especially at moments when God was making covenants with his people. Because in looking at each one, we're then seeing connections to the new and eternal covenant that our Lord made in his Paschal Mystery and which we'll be celebrating in just a few weeks. So we started back on the first Sunday by hearing way back about the covenant that our Lord made with Noah and with the whole world after the flood. And we see a connection there between that covenant and what our Lord Jesus does for us. Because just as that flood with Noah was meant to cleanse the world of sin, but not to kill Noah and his family, but to preserve them, bring them through alive to a new creation. So our Lord Jesus uses water in baptism in us to cleanse us of terrible sin, but to bring us alive to new and transformed life. We jump forward several centuries to the second Sunday when we saw his covenant with Abraham. And we saw that in making that covenant, he asked of Abraham everything. That Abraham couldn't hold anything back, not only his one and only beloved son, who was his only way by which the promise that a great nation would come from him would ever be fulfilled. And we saw that in Jesus, it was God the Father himself who held nothing back, but gave us his one and only son. And he invites us into a relationship that is that close in which nothing is held back, either what we give or what we receive. And then we leaped several centuries forward to last Sunday when we were at Moses and his covenant with the people of Israel, and we heard the giving of the Ten Commandments as part of the law. We saw that he meant to reshape his people to be like him, to shape them, to change them, so they would be faithful and good and generous and just, like he himself is. And perhaps we know that simply giving a law wasn't enough. We needed more help than that. And our Lord Jesus, in talking about how he was the new temple, and he would give his body to be destroyed but raised up after three days, was going to do that work again, but far more profoundly. Not just giving us instruction, but going deeply, giving us himself, 
so you could bring about that change in ourselves. And now this Sunday, we've again leapt several centuries more forward. Now we've come to the 6th century BC. And we find out that this nation that our Lord had chosen and protected and caused to grow from one man, Abraham, and taught and given all this stuff to, we find out that what? They screwed up royally. That they were so unfaithful to him as compared to other gods, so unjust, so completely went off the track. While he was faithful to the covenant, they were not. They brought this terrible destruction on themselves and were taken into exile. And in a sense, the message is, it's your own fault. He upheld his end of the bargain. But they and we so often do not. And if, if the first reading brings us first into that sort of state of desolation in which they brought themselves into this disaster by their unfaithfulness to all he had given, well, the fact is the whole world finds itself in that situation. And in this sense, the gospel message sometimes can seem, especially in our modern world, can seem to some people not like good news, but like bad news. As if the people proclaiming this message are pointing a finger and saying, you're bad. Look what you've done. But here's the thing. Is it really a pointing finger? If we look around us, and perhaps especially for young people today, the first place to look is around. Look at society, look at the world, and ask yourself, whether you look at the environment or different patterns in the culture and society and government, do you think that everywhere you look, you see things run well, generously, justly? Almost anyone looking out there is going to recognize that in some ways we've screwed up seriously, that we receive so much, and what have we done with it? Well, it's easy to, to look at that and see it out there. And then if we look at ourselves, even those who might not be so sure about the Christian message, if they simply look at themselves, us having recognized it out there, we recognize that each of us, we too, have fallen short of the standards we set for ourselves. You know, don't even pay attention to the standards other people tell you that you're not so sure about, your own standards. If the gospel message starts by saying that we're in a messed up situation, it's not a pointing finger, it's just the truth. And we know it. But this then is where the good news enters in. We heard in that first reading that after the people of Israel brought this on themselves, that in a sense, out of nowhere, out of nothing deserved, the reading jumps forward a few decades, God does something completely unexpected. He chooses a king, not a king of Israel, but a king of Persia, Cyrus, to do something amazing, to actually take the people from exile and bring them back to their own land. Something astonishingly generous and amazing that they didn't possibly deserve. And he just did it for them. And that's what we hear in the second reading, in the gospel reading as well, isn't it? As Paul reminds us, 
that all that God does for us in this eternal covenant with Jesus, it isn't because we deserved it. It's just because he did it, because he loved us. In that letter to the Ephesians, one of St. Paul's points in bringing this out is that this levels the ground between us. In his case, in the first century, it was the Jews and the Gentiles. And there might have been the tendency for the Jews who'd become Christians to say to the Gentiles, oh, well, we know you guys, you know, you've been pagans. We've had all this stuff, you know, we're high, you're low. He's like, no, we all screwed up, all of us. We all start out on the same level. Or as my late mother used to say, if you share the gospel with someone, you're not saying to them, I'm better than you. You're just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. You're not better than the other person next to you following Christ. You're also not worse than them. Every single person, we all start at the same level. We all start at the level where God reached out to us, rich in mercy, in his love. And just because he chose to out of love, offered us so much to bring us from death to life, to bring us from having fallen low, to raising us us up onto our feet and raising us up into the heavens to be sons and daughters of Him. This is what it's all about. Now, He wants to make us saints. He wants to make us men and women truly fit for heaven, magnificent, loving, free, generous, deserving of all the heavenly rewards. He wants to make us that. But it starts with his love and builds in that direction. It doesn't go the other way around. It doesn't start with us earning his love. We can't earn his love, and we don't need to. One of those great sayings that captures it, contrary to some of the errors of our age, is to say, God loves you just the way you are. And he loves you too much to let you stay that way. God loves you just the way you are, and he loves you too much to let you stay that way. So love begins it and picks us up not because we could ever do anything to deserve it, but because he loves us and wants to and raises us up and builds from there. And so it is that the name of the game is gratitude. The name of the game is receptiveness. Pride? No place here. No place for pride. Just open hands in front of God. Of course, the great place where we receive that is baptism. But for those who've been baptized, we know that there is that great sacrament of mercy that we can come back to again and again. It is, in a sense, a courtroom, but the accusing attorney is you. You walk in and accuse yourself in front of the judge. You accuse yourself of everything you've done because you know that judge is going to respond by forgiving you. 
sacrament of confession. It's a great place of truth. The truest place in the world is a great place of mercy. Where you come with no pretense. Take away every justification, every defense you might have used with everyone else. Just take it away. Stand there in front of God as you are. And let him respond with love. And with washing you clean. Do you know that, I can't remember it was yesterday, I think it was yesterday, Pope Francis declared, surprise, no warning on this one, he declared a jubilee year. If you hadn't heard it, well, it only was yesterday. A jubilee year beginning this December and lasting almost a year, the year of mercy. So that we all can remember and seek and receive and proclaim to others the riches of God's mercy so we can receive them, be bathed in them, washed in them, strengthened by them, and live in that mercy. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but might have eternal life.